Welcome to the Early Link Podcast. I'm your host, Rafael Otto. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Carlos Crespo. He is professor at the Joint School of Public Health run by OHSU and PSU. For those of you outside of the state of Oregon, that is Oregon Health Sciences University and Portland State University. Carlos, welcome to the Early Link Podcast. Thank you. I know you're talking with a lot of people and there's so much changing information right now related to COVID-19 and coronavirus. What's the latest news? Well, the latest that I've been watching, there's the scientific part of of the virus. There is the uh, social or political part of the virus. And I think the good news from my point of view is that finally these two pieces have uh, are starting to listen to each other. Uh, we have had, uh, it's not mixed messages, but it hasn't been a cohesive message from the scientific community and from the uh, government political offices about what's the virus, what we're doing, what we're going to do as a group. So I think the good news is, I think we're getting there. So we're coalescing around this sense of urgency. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Who right now is at most risk? Yeah. So we have known, and it's not just in the U.S., is worldwide that older people, some people use the term elderly, I prefer to call them older adults, 70, sometimes the number comes down to 60. I just turned 60, so I'm I'm getting a little sensitive about it. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, not all 60 are created equal, but I think it's good to get down to to 60 years of age, Mm -hmm. who, as you get older, your immune system is It's not compromised, but the response of the immune system, in English, it's immunosessence, something like that. But as we get older, our immune system responds less than when we're younger. So that's one thing. Also, people have the immune system compromised, and that could be because they're in uh, chemotherapy or they might be taking some medications for another condition that immunosuppress their system. So these two groups are at higher risk. It does not mean, it does not mean that if you're younger, you don't need to worry about the virus. Mm -hmm. We have been lucky, as far as I know, that there has not been any death on people younger than nine years of age. Okay. Which is good news. And it's uh, somewhat different than other viruses. As someone who uh, is 60, are you taking extra precautions in your day-to-day activities? Actually, I am. I'm working from home. My employer, which is a university, didn't cancel school. We're in finals, but all the finals are done online that to prevent faculty and students from coming into the university. So I've been working from home. I go for walks and I, you know, I'm less social, let's put it that way. I probably not instead of talk to people because the air droplets, which is the main issue here, are the one that carries the virus and I don't have to exchange in a conversation, especially less than six feet. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So talk about the impact that the coronavirus is having on communities, on local communities. So it has disrupted our day-to-day operations in in unprecedented ways. I was just talking to an older neighbor, and she was telling me about 1943s and and etc. And there was a threat of of war. There was a threat of things happening, and you have to be alert. The difference is you could see who the enemy was. You could see what is it that you have to be afraid of. Sure. Even when we have 
Zika virus or dengue or chikungunya. We know who the enemy is. It's a mosquito. You can see it. Today, we're dealing with something that we cannot see. It's hard for the public to realize that you're making changes to your daily life. You're being inconvenienced by, by these public health people to stay home, and you don't see why now. You see the news. You see what could happen if you don't take action. And I think we're showing uh, on TV what happened in China. We're showing what's happening in Italy. We can see dead bodies. We can see uh, hospitals being overrun. You can see the impact of this invisible thing could have on our daily life. And hopefully that it's creating some conscience in people about how unprecedented and the things that we need to do in order to flatten the curve. And I could talk about flattening the curve uh, later. Yeah. I mean, information is changing on a regular basis. A few days ago, mm -hmm. we were talking about limiting groups to 250 or less. Now we're down to 25. What are the other things that are happening from a public health perspective that we need to do to reduce the risk? So actually it's 10. <laughs> it's 10, yes. It's 10, yeah. yeah. So, which is, I mean, it's is a moving target. We, should have, we could have started with 10. There were risks that we were taking by having a bigger number. I think the safest number is the lowest number. Mm -hmm. The key part is not so much the number. I think the key part is that we prevent humans from spreading the virus from one person to another. And the lower the number, the better. I think there were concerns about the huge disruption that you were going to have by going to 10 right away. But we, they're trade off and, and the number just kept uh, coming down, coming down until people are uh, starting to take it more seriously. Talk about the intersection between the interests of public health and what we're seeing in terms of the ripple effect on the economy and what that means for people in their day-to-day -day lives mm, yeah. in, in terms of job insecurity. What does that intersection look like to you? So for the most part, we, we don't hear from public health. When public health works, no one cares about public health. <laughs> right. We drink our water. We breathe the air. We walk safe outside. We have plenty of food uh, in the supermarkets. So these things are a given when something, uh, for whatever reason, goes wrong, it has a huge impact on everything else. Mm -hmm. So the medical doctor, he sees one patient at a time. That's their training. It's you have one individual in front of you, and they tell you their pain and aches, and then you do whatever you need to do, prescribe medication, treatment, cure, whatever. In public health, we, we don't see the individual one-on-one. -on -one. We Our patient is the community. We're actually looking at a, a huge number of people, and then we make decisions that have an impact on a huge number of people, and some of them will be benefiting, and, and you don't want to harm people unnecessarily. So where we are now, we have a virus that, like I say, it's invisible. It's creating havoc, and we know it because we see it. And then we have been in the U.S., it's not lucky, but we have been fortunate that we can see what has happened in, in other settings, in, others, in other countries, in other cities. We have seen what happened when you don't do and act quickly enough. Mm -hmm. and, we, and we have seen what happened when you actually start things more rapidly. Right. We listen about what's happening in China and Italy, but other things have happened in Singapore, in Norway, 
in, in other places where they have acted more quickly, perhaps more aggressively, in a political system that is very similar to ours. We learn a lot from China. They try a variety of things. Some of them worked. Some of them did not. They changed what they were doing. I don't know if you remember when they were allowing people to go to the supermarket right. one at a time. Right. That did not work, by the way. Uh-huh. And they went to a order your food and we'll bring it to your apartment. And then we'll have a system for one person at a time to pick up their box of food and the boxes were sprayed, et cetera, et cetera. These measures have taught us things that we can do. Actually, another example is South Korea, where there was massive testing. And that helped because we are now in public health assuming that some people have the virus and don't know they have the virus. I don't even know if I have the virus. We, you probably don't know. And even if we want to know, we can't because it's only for specific people who meet certain guidelines that the test is available and the test is free. The treatment... And that's because we don't have enough testing. We don't have enough available. testing. Yeah, we don't have enough testing. And not all tests are created equal, which is another issue, which is when you have a test and it tells you that you have the virus, you want to feel confident that you do have the virus. But the more important part is when you take a test and it says you do not have the virus, that you can feel confident that actually I do not have the virus. I could go home. I could interact with grandma yeah. and grandpa. Tests have different sensitivity and specificity. That I tried to explain this to, the other day to somebody. It's, it's like a pregnancy test. So you, you take the pregnancy test. You don't go by the test that you take at the pharmacy. You take a second test that validates the original one. Sure. And it's because not all tests, uh, if you have a positive, it could be a false positive, so you need a second test. Yeah. So that, I think, unnecessarily, in my opinion, unnecessarily delay our response, uh, delay our capacity for people to know what kind of risk they were, and for people to take action if they knew they were positive, even though they were not symptomatic. How can communities, how can families think about building resilience during a time like this? So there's community, uh, there's family. Uh, we, we're not used to spending time together <laughs> in a close environment for a long time. And it looks relatively simple uh, on paper, but when you realize that you can't talk too loud, that uh, somebody's taking an exam from home, the kids, especially young kids, it's hard for them to understand what it means to stay home. It's hard for them to understand that it's not a snow day. It's actually a day. There's no school, but the reason is because we don't want you around spreading germs. Yeah, yeah. It's not just the coronavirus that we're trying to prevent. There are a lot of other germs out there. And by remaining socially distanced, we're reducing the risk of spreading coronavirus, but other viruses. Right. The least we overburden the healthcare system, then the better we can react to the coronavirus. Sure. I wanted to ask you, because we've been closing schools, I know in Oregon, we're at two and a half weeks of closure, thinking that's probably going to go longer. But there's also this demand on keeping childcare in place so that people can return to work. There are especially key personnel that have to keep working. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that conundrum, keeping the childcare centers open, but closing schools? The good news, there's a lot of bad news, but there's a couple of good news for people not to super panic. One is children, for whatever reason, are less impacted by this virus. It doesn't mean that they're not carriers of the virus, just that we know that the virus spreads easily. 
you know, to go quickly from one person to another. Sure. The other side of that is the severity of the disease, the virulent uh, uh, of the disease is that most people, especially children, young adults, will not get overly sick. They might have uh, symptoms like a common cold or something like that, but it's, they're not going to get super sick. It's just their specific at-risk group that will be negatively impacted. There might be people who could be in that group and they don't know about it. There might be something else going on in their body that all of a sudden they've been exposed to this virus and find out. Okay. So that's why we're all in this together. Mm-hmm. So the virus takes about somewhere between two to 10 days to incubate and show symptoms. So with two, two to three weeks, whoever is positive, it gives that person a chance to develop the symptoms for the system to act and take care of those people. But more importantly, is for stopping people from moving from point A to point B and spread the virus and then getting more people infected. Right. The daycare situation is because we do need people to take care of those who are infected and getting sick. We have nurses, we have doctors, we have public health specialists, we have people who need to make sure that we still have able to drink the water. We have there's a lot of essential things that have to happen. And these people have children. And if we allow for these kids to be able to do their job in a way that they can relax, that their kids are safe and being taken care of someplace, that's good. It's not an easy thing because you want to keep these kids safe. You want to keep these kids protected from the virus. And that requires personnel too. You know? Right, right. So we're trying to minimize the exposure, address the major points of infection, and yet uh, provide the space for people to do their day-to-day job in order for us to flatten the curve. What is planned right now to ensure that people have reliable health care access over the coming weeks, over the coming months? And as part of that, are providers looking at, for example, things like telehealth? Uh, yes, the federal government has listed some restrictions or regulations around telehealth. So we could do more telehealth, and that's especially for Medicare and Medicaid patients. The healthcare system hasn't stopped. People still get heart attacks. People still have strokes. People would fall. Uh, there are broken bones. There are people who have asthma. There's people who are in dialysis and kidney. All these things, they haven't gone away. These things happen, happen daily, and the healthcare system cannot ignore these things. We have some directive to delay, postpone elective things, and so we can concentrate on taking care of the, of the major things that we need to take care of. Sure. Because the virus is so infectious, we do not want to mix these two groups. And that's why the healthcare system is in high alert, because we need to triage, we need to separate those that have the coronavirus from the rest of the other uh, immunocompromised uh, group of, of in the community. Do you feel that we're collecting the right information, the right data, you know, specifically so that when we come out of this, we have lessons learned about what to do next time? I'm writing actually a paper on that as we speak for a journal called Cities and Health. And uh, we're going to call it common indicators. You're looking at everything and then you model and find out, you know, population density, for example. What, What does that really mean? What happened to school system that had uh, 30, 40 kids in one classroom compared to school system that had uh, 20? This is that intersection of the entire society 
the weaknesses of our healthcare system have been put on on the spot. Yeah. You probably have health insurance. I have health insurance. I know that every time I see the doctor, I am nickel and dime for copays, deductible, etc. Yeah. So a person who somewhat thinking that they have the symptom for the virus, the thought is, and this is the sad part of our U.S. healthcare is, when we get sick, the first thing we think about is, how am I going to pay for it? Right. This is the sad part. Yep. In other societies, you get sick, you go to a doctor, and, and you start planning about how we're going to get better. Right. In the U.S., is okay, the, the health insurance, the first one is going to say, oh, you haven't met your deductible. The doctor says, you have a copay, and then you start getting letters from uh, collectors about you pay your bills. Yep. And that prevents people from seeking care when they need to, especially if you're poor. Yeah. So that highlights the fact that our kids get their meals at the school system is actually sickening that the fact that we have to keep schools open because that's where the kids are able to find food to eat, breakfast and, and lunch. That's actually in the richest country in the world. That should not happen. Right. I, I think it took this coronavirus to highlight the uh, flaws of how we think a functional society should work. And I think how our education system and, and our health system and, and all of our systems really should be working together. Yeah. You know, there's the labor part. People people go to work sick. Yeah. Because if they do not work, they don't get paid. Because our sick leave is all over the place. If we have a national uh, directive of here is what you need to offer, and if you get sick, you can stay home, and, and you get paid. And now it takes, which <laughs> it, I'm laughing, but it takes an act of Congress, which we know Congress is, <laughs> nothing gets done in Washington, D.C., but it has taken an act of Congress to actually provide sick leave to people who are in different economies, uh, not to come to work if they feel sick. So, so this is where we see that intersection of education, the labor, transportation. I mean, transportation, we can't move like we freely like to move. Uh, airlines, they like to pack people on an airplane. Right now, that's, that's a bad idea. Yeah. I mean, if, if you're, yeah. So, yeah, a lot of things I think have been highlighted by, by this invisible uh, coronavirus. Yes, indeed. Uh, Dr. Crespo, it's been great to speak with you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Appreciate and uh, uh, thank you for the opportunity to talk to your audience. This is the Early Link Podcast brought to you by Children's Institute. Children's Institute is working to ensure that every child in Oregon has the best start in life. I'm your host, Rafael Otto. Join us and tune in on 99.1 FM on the second and fourth Sunday of every month at 4.30 p.m. Episodes are also available on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. You can also find episodes on the Children's Institute website at childinst.org and on the Portland Radio Project website at prp.fm. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.